You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was recorded on the third Sunday of Easter, May 5th, 2019. A reading from the Book of Acts. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias! And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I wonder if any of you have ever had the opportunity to name something, particularly a business or an organization or a ministry. It's sort of a a big responsibility because when you name something, you really want that name to capture what it is that you're trying to accomplish, to capture the vision that God's given you for this thing, whatever it is. And so you, in just a few words, need to come up with something that, that will draw people's attention to what you're all about. A name is a really important thing. Uh, Mother Carrie and I had the opportunity to name a church once. We were planting a church in Pittsburgh, and part of our vision for this church was that it would be a church where all the generations could worship together and where families would be brought together um, in the gospel. And so we felt led to name this church Holy Family Anglican Church. Unfortunately, we didn't realize at the time that just down the street there was a large Catholic social services organization called Holy Family that sort of dwarfed that name. And so we we ended up, under the bishop's advice, going with a different name. We called it St. Joseph's instead. 
But it was really an honor to be able to participate in the naming of that church, the naming of that ministry and organization. It can be overwhelming. How do you think the church got its name? Did you know that in the very beginning, the church wasn't even called the church? That name came about kind of later. There was another name that really captured the earliest disciples, the earliest members of the church. And the name that they called themselves, the name that others called them as well, was not the church, not even Christians. That name came later as well. They were called people following the way. People following the way. And we read about this in our lesson from Acts today, where we hear about Paul on his way to Damascus. And this is what it says about Paul. His name was Saul back then. This is one of those confusing places where someone starts with one name in the Bible and then they end up with another name. So eventually he's going to be called Paul. And this is the same guy that wrote most of the letters in the New Testament, like the letter to the Corinthians and the second letter to the Corinthians and first and second Thessalonians and Ephesians and Philippians and many others. He was a very important person in the early church. But he didn't come on board until after Jesus had died and rose again, even after Jesus had ascended up into heaven. And back then, he was known as Saul, and he was a Pharisee, and he was a leader among the Pharisees, very well educated, and he was dead set against the church and against Jesus. And so this is what it says about Saul. It says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Yikes. That doesn't sound very nice. He went to the high priest and asked them for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, with a capital W, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So even at this point, Paul, an outsider, not, not someone among the church members, was seeing this group and calling it the way. And we see this name for the church six different times in the book of Acts. It's the most common way by which the believers are referred to in the book of Acts. What does this mean? Why would they call it the way? It's sort of like an ambiguous, uh, ambiguous name. Well, there's two things, but they mostly come from the teachings of Jesus. So you'd have to understand the teaching of Jesus to understand the naming of the church in this way, the way. So those two, pa two places we can look, there's others as well, but one is in the Gospel of Matthew. And in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he says in chapter 7, beginning in verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So what we see here is Jesus setting up a contrast between two different ways, one that leads to life and one that leads to destruction, one that leads to eternity with God, who is our life, and one that leads to eternity apart from God, which is what we call hell. One way leads to life, the other way leads to destruction. And the thing about roads or ways is that their destination is certain. 
When you are on Highway 95, if you just get on Highway 95 here in Jacksonville, and you just keep driving, you're eventually gonna to get to either Miami or you'll get to my parents up in Boston, and then you can keep going beyond them up into Maine, and eventually the road's gonna stop before you get to Canada because Canada doesn't have American interstate highways. It's a different country. The destination starts in one place and it ends for certain in another place. And so when you are on a road, whether it's the road leading to life or the road leading to destruction, it's a way that's certain and sure. And the disciples wanted to encapsulate this as they called themselves the way because they wanted to identify themselves as people who were on the way to life, the way of Jesus, and people who were not on the way to destruction. There's another passage where Jesus talks about a way, the way, and that's in the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his eventual departure, for his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And he says that I'm not always going to be here with you. He says, I'm going to my father's house. And in my father's house, there are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you. And then Thomas, poor Thomas. Remember, last week we were talking about doubting Thomas. Now we're talking about Thomas, who's a little confused. Jesus is talking, and, and Thomas says, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. And Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me? Oh, I'm sorry, that was Philip. It's not Thomas's problem, it's Philip's problem. Philip. And then he says, I am the, no, it was Thomas. I'm just confused all over the place this morning. <laughs> Philip comes next. Uh, Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? I knew it was Thomas. And Jesus says to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So this way is the way of life. It's also the way to the Father. And it's the way to the eternal destiny for all of us, which is in our Father's house if we are on this way of life. The disciples wanted everybody to know that that was the way that they had chosen. That was the way that they had set themselves on. And the other way is not a good way. It's a way of destruction. It's the way of the world. So Paul, Saul, in this book of Acts, was on the way to destruction. We know this right from the very first words of this passage, where it says, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest to try and capture them. Saul was heartily opposed to the church. You might remember a few chapters before this in the book of Acts, where Stephen, the first martyr of the church, was stoned to death because he was preaching the name of Jesus. And we see Saul in this story as well. Saul is the one who inspired the people to stone Stephen. And Saul was the one who was standing on the sidelines holding their coats for them as they threw rocks at Stephen and killed him. This Saul was very zealous against the church. He was on the way to destruction. He thought he was doing the right thing and he was doing it with gusto and bravado. But Jesus steps in and he helps him to get on the right way, the way, the way that leads to life, the way that leads to the Father. And the beginning of his new life in Christ begins right here in the story where he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. 
even as he's on his way to capture Christians and bring them before the high priest, Jesus stops him in the middle of the road and surrounds him with a blinding light. And he says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Now, how was Saul persecuting Jesus? He was persecuting disciples for sure. He was persecuting Stephen. He was persecuting the people that he was after in Damascus. But he, he hadn't actually met Jesus before this moment. How was he persecuting Jesus? Remember, in Jesus' own teaching, he talks about the sheep and the goats. And the, the goats are in kind of a bad place. They're on their way uh, to hell. And they say, well, why are we on our way to hell? And he says, well, when I was naked, you didn't clothe me. And I was hungry and you didn't feed me. And I was in prison and you didn't visit me. And they say, Lord, when, when did these things happen? We don't remember that. And he said, when you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. And similarly to the sheep who are on their way into the kingdom of the Father, he says, when I was hungry, you fed me. And when I was naked, you clothed me. And they said, when did we do these things? And they said, when you did it to me, when you did it to the least of these, you did it also to me. Jesus is revealing that he is in his disciples, and his disciples are in him. Maybe this is why in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul has this robust theology of the body of Christ being the church, and all of us members of the body because we're members of the church. So Paul encounters Christ with this blinding light on the road, and Christ, Jesus, confronts him with his sin. And then Paul's conversion is followed by baptism. The Lord sends Ananias to him to pray for him to receive his sight again because he was blinded by the light, to pray for him to receive the Holy Spirit, and to baptize him. And then in the next verses, we didn't read them today, but in the next verses it says that Saul, for some days, was with the disciples in Damascus. And so during that time, it doesn't say specifically, but we can imagine that what was happening is he was being discipled by those other disciples in Damascus. He was being shown the way that leads to life. He was being shown the fullness of the gospel, the fullness of how the things in the Old Testament apply to Jesus and what that means for us when we accept Jesus into our lives as our Lord, as our Savior. This is how Paul joined the way. And it's the same way that we join the way as well. It always begins with an encounter with Jesus. For some people, that's a very dramatic encounter like Paul's was. I'm sure many of you have heard stories of, of people, you know, maybe even it's your story that Jesus stops you at some particular point in your life and gets you on the way in a very dramatic way. And for others, it's a very slow process. Some people never remember a moment that they weren't a Christian, that they weren't following the Lord Jesus because they grew up in a Christian home surrounded by parents who loved them and were sharing the gospel with them. And it's just... It's what they've always known. And in that sense, they encountered Jesus in the context of their family, and they've grown up knowing Jesus. But either way, you have to have an encounter with Jesus. 
And then in that encounter, Jesus confronts us with our sin. Sin is that which separates us from God. It's every time that we choose to go away from the will of God and to follow our own way, that is sin. And sin keeps us from God. And so Jesus confronts us with our sin. He says, you're going the wrong way. Come choose this way. I am this way. The way to the Father is through me. Choose a new life. And then when we've accepted Jesus into our lives, when we've asked Jesus to forgive us of our sin, we're then baptized. And we're discipled. We're brought into the faith. We're raised up in Christ. We're taught more about this way. This way that leads to life. Paul's conversion was a dramatic conversion. And dramatic conversions are often powerful ways of sharing the gospel with the people around you. Saul, after just a few days of being discipled by the other disciples in Damascus, begins to preach the name of Jesus in the synagogues of Damascus. And people are startled by this. Remember, this is the same Saul that was sent to Damascus with letters to capture people and bring them back to Jerusalem to be punished. This was the same Saul that was there and present when Stephen was martyred. And so when he starts to preach the name of Jesus, it says in verse 20, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. That's not what he was saying a couple days ago. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for the purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. How did he prove Jesus was the Christ? He was already a very zealous Jew. He already knew the scriptures of the Old Testament like the back of his hand. But once he realized that all of these scriptures point to Jesus, once the scales had fallen from his eyes, and he was able to see, not just with his eyes, but his spiritual eyes as well, he was able to see how all of it pointed to Jesus, and he was quick to turn his zeal away from persecuting the church to proclaiming the name of Christ. And people listened because of that dramatic change in his life. Sometimes the people who are most passionately against God and his church become the most zealous evangelists. The people of Damascus knew that Saul was a changed man because it was evident from his life. So how would the people in your life know that you are a Christian? What is evident in your life that makes the people of the world say, wow, that person has chosen a different way? Has your life been transformed by Jesus? Are you actually walking along the way? Or are you just standing on the edge next to the way? Does your way of life stand out from the world? Or are you wearing worldly camouflage, blending in so you don't stand out? You don't have to be judgmental to stand out from the world. In fact, it's better if you're not judgmental. Our job is simply to present Jesus, to present the way that leads to life. For a long time, there's been a perception of the church that it's judgmental, that it's, uh, that it's against anybody who's a sinner, and that it's an unwelcoming place. But I think 
there's some truth in this because the church has sometimes been an unwelcoming place to sinners. We've given the impression that you have to behave to be accepted in the church. And so to come to the church, you have to first get your, your life in line and sort all your, your affairs out, get, get rid of all the sin in your life, and then you can come to believe in Jesus, and then you will finally belong when you've gotten in line. But what we see in the scriptures is something very different. And what we should be doing as Christians is very different. We should be welcoming people because people need to first belong before they can believe. And eventually, under the power of the Holy Spirit, they will come to behave. Now, let me just ask you a quick question. How many of you are perfectly aligned with Christ and are not sinning at all ever? None of us, right? Not me. Certainly not me. So if, that's, if the first one is, is the system, if you have to behave first so that you can believe and then belong, we better all leave and we'll just lock up the door and we'll shut the lights out. But if the other is true, then we need to be welcoming of all so that they have a chance to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel and believe in Jesus Christ and find their way onto the way that leads to life. And then we can help them over time to reform their behavior. But the gospel is not about behavior modification. It's about a changed life that comes from a changed heart from the Savior, Jesus Christ, and his Holy Spirit working in us. The love of God and the forgiveness of God are very compelling. Even if people don't believe in God or that he exists, people still feel a sense of shame in their lives. They might not know why, but they feel ashamed of their actions. They feel ashamed of the things that they do in private. And everybody needs love. And we as Christian, Christians can show them that love. And by demonstrating our love for them, we demonstrate Christ's love for them. We demonstrate that Jesus loved them so much that he gave himself up for them. People generally won't respond to correction and change until they know that they are loved. Which is why Paul, in the letter to the Ephesians, says that we are to speak the truth in love. Speak the truth not in a condemning way, but in a way that points people to the God who loves them. Sometimes we have to do this in a sacrificial way. Sometimes we have to do this in a way that makes every use of the faith that we talked about last week, a faith that's not just intellectual assent to the facts of Jesus' death and resurrection, but actually gives our lives over to him, trusts him with our very lives, obeys him in whatever it is. And both Ananias and Barnabas in today's lesson from Acts are perfect examples of this kind of faith, this obedient, trusting faith. They put their trust in Jesus and they obeyed him even with the potential for great risk. So let's look first at Ananias. Remember, Paul comes down the road to Damascus, the blinding light, he can't see anymore. The Lord tells him to go to a particular house in Damascus and wait there, and a man named Ananias is going to come. And then separately, we see this interaction between God and Ananias. Ananias is just sitting in his prayer chair at home. He's minding his own business, reading his Bible, having his quiet time in the morning. And the Lord speaks to him and says, hey, Ananias. And Ananias says, hey, Lord, how you doing? And then the Lord says, Rise and go to the street called Straight, 
And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision of you, Ananias. Come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And Ananias kind of scratches his head and says, Saul, Saul. Saul's that guy who's coming here to try and capture me and take me back to Jerusalem. I, Lord, do you really know who this Saul guy is? I don't, I don't think this is a good idea. I'm, I'm not sure that that's basically what he's saying. He says, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. For Ananias to go to the place where Saul is, is essentially to ask Ananias to go hand himself in. That's a tough call. What does he do? After the Lord redirects him and assures him, the Lord doesn't assure him that he'll be safe. He doesn't assure him that he'll be protected. But he does assure him that this is what he wants him to do. He says, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And then it just says, so Ananias departed and went to that house. He was quick to obey. Even in a costly situation. In a situation that could lead to the end of his own life. He was willing to follow the leading of the Lord. Similarly, Barnabas after Saul leaves Damascus in a very dramatic way, the, the Jews got mad at him. He had to flee the city and he couldn't go out by the gates because they were watching for him. So he's let down from the walls of the city in a basket. This would make for a great movie. And he escapes and he goes to Jerusalem and he knocks on the door of the apostles there and he says, hey, I'm one of you now. And the apostles say, oh, hold on. We're not so sure about this. I'm not, uh, you, you, mm, you? Really? Really? But Barnabas steps in. And here's what Barnabas says. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem. Barnabas was the one who let them in. Barnabas was the one who said, I'm going to trust the Lord on this one, and I'm going to trust that you actually are who you say you are, and that you actually have found your way onto the way. And he welcomes him in. Who is God calling you to reach? God called Ananias to go to this person who was a persecutor of the church and reach out to him in the name of Jesus. It was a distinct call. Who is the Lord putting on your heart? Pray and ask him to reveal that to you. When God puts someone in your life who's ready to be led to the Lord, do you know what to do? The first thing, as I just said, is to pray for that person. And then to love that person. To show hospitality to that person. To welcome them in the name of Jesus. And sometimes that stage can take a very long time. Sometimes it comes very quickly. But people need to know that you love them because God loves them. And then at some point, you can pray that God will lead you into spiritual conversations and God will present you with opportunities to explain the gospel to them when they're ready to hear it. 
And so you can explain how Jesus died for our sins. You can explain about the difference between the way that leads to destruction and the way that leads to life. You can talk about how much God loves them. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world so that we might not perish, but have instead eternal life. And you can tell them about how sin separates us from God. And when you've done all of that, if they're ready, you can lead them in a prayer of repentance and faith. There are lots of versions of this. There's a version of the the sinner's prayer. There's one in our catechism called the prayer of repentance and faith. Or you can just pray free form, and that's fine too. But all of them share three basic things in common. I'm sorry, thank you, and please. I'm sorry is a confession of our sin, our, our choosing to walk away from the Lord and follow our own way, the way that leads to destruction instead of his way. Thank you is thanking Jesus for what he's done on the cross and asking him to forgive us, thanking us for what he offers us. And please is asking him to enter into our lives, to help us to put our faith in him and to follow him on the road that leads to life. And then once you've done that, bring them to church and participate in their discipleship and sponsor them for baptism so they can be brought into the family of God. Paul, later in his ministry, when he's ministering to the Corinthians in the second letter to the Corinthians, he gives his followers an identity, and it's the same identity that we have. It's part of uh, our values as a church, is that each of us is a missionary. Paul uses a different word. He uses the word ambassador. An ambassador is someone who goes to another nation on behalf of their nation and represents their nation to that other nation. And we are ambassadors for Christ, Paul says. We are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. That's amazing. Sometimes God makes his appeal directly. When God made his appeal to Paul, he made it directly and in a dramatic way. He blinds Paul on the road to Damascus and confronts him personally. And there are lots of stories of of God directly intervening in someone's life, but far more common is for God to use us, his ambassadors, to make his appeal through us to that person. And so we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. One of the most amazing experiences of my life has been to watch our six children come into the world and be born. It's just a a totally mind-blowing experience to see someone come into the world and be a a person, a human being. And in the same passage in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about new life that we find in Christ. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And I tell you, the joy of watching someone come to faith in Jesus Christ to get off of the way that leads to destruction and onto the way that leads to life is a truly amazing experience, similar to watching children be born into this world because they are literally a new creation. You can see the change on their face. You can see the burdens lifted from their shoulders. You can see their countenance change. This is our privilege to participate in the work of our Father, to participate as ambassadors for Christ, drawing other people into him and setting them on the way that leads to life. May that be the way that we mark our lives. May we be Christians who listen to the voice of the Lord and follow wherever it is that he leads us.
And may we be his ambassadors, sharing his gospel with all the people around us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for each person here. We thank you that you are a God who loves us so much that you stop us on the way to destruction and help us to find our way onto the path that leads to life in Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to take up our role as ambassadors for you. And we thank you for the privilege of you making your appeal through us. And so we pray for each person that you put on our heart this morning and leading up to this morning. And we pray, Lord, that you would change their hearts, that you would soften them by your Holy Spirit and that you'd prepare them to receive the message of your salvation, the message of your gospel. And we pray, Lord, that you would make your way clear for us as we participate as ambassadors for you in their lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.